Mitra Kalita is a celebrated journalist and media executive, author of two books, and a former senior vice president for news, opinion, and programming at CNN Digital, where she oversaw a team of 200 employees. Mitra has also taught her craft at Columbia, UMass Amherst, SUNY Graduate School, St. John's, and in November of 2020, she was asked to join the board of the Philadelphia Inquirer. In her spare time, just little, she's a story consultant on season three of Apple TV's The Morning Show, which is so good, a program I would highly recommend watching when time allows. During our chat, we talked about her tenure as a journalist and media executive, why she started a company called Epicenter New York City during COVID, how and why she co-founded her company, URL Media, and why she believes that diversity, equity, and inclusion are so important in today's newsrooms and corporate landscapes in general, and why the Philadelphia Inquirer asked her to be part of their board. I was honored to have Mitra join me on the program, and I hope you learned as much from her as I did. Well, hello, Mitra. It is so good to see you again. It's been five or six months, I think, since I saw you. It has. It's good to see you, Joey. And we met at your Diversity and People Leaders Summit here in San Francisco back in May, and I was finally able to get you on my calendar. Your system has been wonderful. You're a busy young woman, so thanks for making the time. I'm going to um, focus on the word young. Thank you. <laughs> I guess all things are relative. And <laughs> as discussed with your assistant via email, my hope today is pretty simple. Uh, I want to hear all of your origins of URL Media, when you started it, why you started it. Uh, I'd like to hear a bit about your co-founder, Sarah Lomax, and how you guys are helping connect media companies owned and operated by black and brown organizations. And last but not least, I want to talk about your recruiting arm because that's a really mm -hmm. fascinating piece to what you guys are doing. Uh, but before I let you answer, I, I would like to reiterate some of your intro specific to your expertise, uh, and I'll be as brief as I can. You are a celebrated journalist and media executive, author of two books. You're a former senior vice president for news, opinion, and programming at CNN Digital, where you oversaw a team of 200 folks. You joined the board of the Philadelphia Inquirer in November of 2020, which I want to talk about a little bit today. And you taught journalism at Columbia, UMass Amherst, SUNY Graduate School, St. John's. And maybe most importantly, you also served as a story consultant on season three of Apple TV's The Morning Show, which, by the way, is so good. And my wife and I love it. So, good. so yeah, so we'll good. bore our listeners with that. But if you haven't no, watched it, it's latest, fabulous. This latest week was good. Yeah, okay, I bet. So, yeah, I could talk with you off camera about that forever. Um, so let's start with why you left your big job at CNN and your big office, which I saw a picture of during your presentation to Story, Stony Brook Journalism School. I was like, oh man, that's legit. Because as someone who's worked in Manhattan in media, I appreciate how cool that office was. So um, I just had to, I just had, <laughs> I just had to get that in there. <clears throat> it's it's so nice that you looked me up on YouTube too. I feel like, you, I feel like you've supported me more than my mother already. It's amazing. <laughs> I'll send her a note just to know how yeah, impressive her yeah. daughter is. You're very um, supportive. They loved my office, but you know, like I, I don't think they've kind of looked at it in the entirety like you just did so that's uh, well, we had a buddy in our office uh our buddy in our industry who got one of the coolest offices ever when he was at uh, turner and mm -hmm. uh, he would invite us in just to have lunch it was that cool so i, I recognize how cool offices are in manhattan because that yeah. san francisco yeah. we have cool offices but not quite the same um so you know even before you left cnn during covid you started a company called epicenter nyc mm -hmm. which was a newsletter to help new yorkers get through covid and you talked to your CNN colleagues and executives about this. It wasn't like you're hiding it. You just did it. Um, right. And it seemed to be the precursor to your entrepreneurial 
stance, which took place again with URL Media. So before we get into URL, could you tell us a little bit about Epicenter New York City and why you started it? Sure, such a good question. Um, I mean, I was, as you said, like an SVP at CNN, and I oversaw the teams that were covering um, health, race, and breaking news as it relates to politics. And of course, we were in the election of 2020. So, um, like, I was pretty sleepless the spring and just on the <laughs> I bet. Right. Oh, meaning, you know, I was very engaged with the news. And yet um, my neighborhood of Jackson Heights was was very affected by the pandemic. We were um, New York Times called us the epicenter of the epicenter, as um, you just uh, sort of said, like we leaned into that identity um, Mm -hmm. in in the product we ended up forming to respond. Um, But I went to CNN and I said, listen, like I feel pretty powerless right now. I live in this neighborhood. I've been overseeing digital strategy for about a decade. If I can't link, um, if I can't sort of help people navigate bureaucracy in this moment of really like life or death need, I just don't know what good I am, forget as a journalist, but just as a neighbor and a human being. Mm-hmm. So um, that's how we launched. I mean, we did. We also, I should just say, like we launched organically, meaning I had already been fielding queries for, you know, COVID tests or um, people who might be able to provide um, shelter or apartments for folks who could not socially distance or quarantine, um, you know, beds at Elmhurst Hospital. Like it just kept going on and on. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I say that because organically a community was both being created but being activated, and it was possible to have needs but also solve someone else's needs. Right, that's kind of the definition of mutual aid groups that popped up at this time. For me, looking at that through the lens of journalism was quite powerful and information. And so we launched this newsletter. Um, what I didn't expect was two things. One it would take off. So it started with this list of like 50 people and we shifted to MailChimp just to make it more efficient to like keep track of who we were emailing and distribute like once a week. Um, I didn't realize it would grow. So that like, it it kept just growing and growing like pretty much exponentially every week. And then the other piece, um, which was different from CNN, you know, CNN is the biggest of the big. I didn't expect small change to matter so much to both the community and to me. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we started to see like, you know, six donations to the food pantry or um, a business that pivoted to sell flowers from whatever it used to do. And we would put a link in the newsletter saying support this entrepreneur. And then he'd like sell out, you know, like things like that, yeah. that were like, oh, that's transformational, both for me and for the person we're trying to uplift. Um, So that's how Epicenter was born. Um, There is, of course, the downside of small change and small impact, uh, which is when you've worked at a CNN, you know the way the rest of the world works and judges you, and that is, unfortunately, by scale. And so that's kind of, I think, what you're alluding to is Epicenter came first, but Epicenter also exposed some of the limits of that model. Which is a good segue then, because you did a lot of cool things, which we could talk about at length, because I I listened to a lot of your interviews on Epicenter. And the fact that you guys helped 10,000 people get COVID shots and the fact that you helped people get proper information 
around the science of what was taking place through yeah. trusted sources. You did a lot of really good work. And I think that's really the central thread to everything I've read about you is that you're oh, always trying to help, which is oh. super cool. We need more people like you on that front. And so you did mention in some of your interviews that, and I want to quote you directly, but it was that you said that March 2020 changed everything for me. And I think you're not alone in that. I just interviewed a young man um, who was a DEI consultant in Washington, D.C. And he wrote a book right after that it was called Letters to My White Male Friends. His name is mm. Dax Devlin Ross. And he's a, I, I love this man. But he, same thing, thinks this was a very jarring moment in his yeah. life. And I, I'm assuming now that that was why. <laughs> but is that what took place March of 2020 for you? So for me, it's really hard to separate like me as a mother, daughter, neighbor um, from the journalist, even though mainstream journalism largely asks that you do separate all those identities mm -hmm. from your work, right? Yep. So March of 2020, just to give you perspective, not only was my neighborhood severely impacted, my father in late February had had a second stroke. And this mm -hmm. time... sorry. That's okay. It's, you know, I've, I've like taken years to kind of grapple with this tragedy. But I think for like a lot of external events, like a pandemic, um, mm -hmm. people go through things at the same time and they kind of converge in terms of shaping your worldview, right? Yeah. So for me, when my father was in a rehab center, um, you know, we saw firsthand and feared firsthand oh my gosh, they're not letting visitors in. Mm -hmm. What will become of a patient who's compromised with speech, swallowing, um, cognitive ability without socialization? Because we'd seen on the first stroke how much the brain, um, those first few months are vital, right? Mm -hmm. So I think one thing is that we were in this um, mental space of kind of, facing this tragedy again, like it probably is one of the great tragedies of my life, what's happened to my father. And, um, and so for me, dealing with COVID and this family situation really impacted my lens on um, how were we going to get through this, but also how will others get through this? And, and anyone who has had to advocate for a loved one in a hospital knows exactly what I'm saying when I say, we are the privileged, right? We speak English. We have access to some money. Um, healthcare. You know, we have healthcare. Of course, that's the vital piece of that. Um, and in my dad's rehab center, we had a doctor who said, Mitra, honestly, I'm not doing this for any family but yours. But you guys can, like one at a time, I'm going to let you in once a day. And she sort of like gave us about a week or two until we could get him out. Now, meaning exceptions are often made for those who have access or who are privileged, right? right yeah. And so we are we are from that cloth in some ways. It's not even as much wealth as it is those things I kind of just outlined, right? Um, and the ability, again, I speak English. Like, like let's mm -hmm. let's let's kind of go real baseline on um on 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 the privileges that we have. So that when I say everything changed for me, um, you know, my father, because my father was raised us in a spirit of abundance. Um, I don't want to cry when I'm doing this interview, but like we were raised with extra people in the basement with 
like, you know, we didn't have a whole lot growing up, but like we were pretty like firmly middle class. Um, but like if anyone ever came over for dinner, like they would my, you know, my parents would give them the good portion of whatever they were serving. Um, so we were raised with that mindset. And so there was something about my father and this moment of COVID that felt um like morally propelled me to do what I ended up doing. And I can only tell you that, sure. Joey, the benefit of hindsight. In the moment, I probably didn't know that all these things were converging. I just felt so helpless. Um, and yet I worked for the largest news organization right. on the planet. Right. So so that's that's, that's a, little... a dichotomy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. And that's, is that where this germinated then in your, as you started to think like, I need to do something different. I think it's that you confront, you confront your um, life, right? You can read life and death. You confront your privilege. Um, and I think that there comes a moment where if you've built the right community, um, that action of directing you to be useful felt like a gift. Like it felt yeah. like, oh, people are turning to me, not in any charitable way, but like this is built on deep ties and like a um, turning to each other almost. Sure. Because certainly what I just described when my father was in rehab, like I turned to a lot of people for help too. I was running news coverage of these big stories. Like I was running back and forth between my parents' house, my house, um, we weren't in the newsroom. We were working from home. Um, but from a management perspective, it's a team of hundreds of people. They're dealing with their own stuff. Um, so I think like being there for others, um, you know, hopefully has defined, well, definitely defined my father's life. But I feel like if it defines mine, then I should be so lucky. Um, I think there's another piece of it, which was a lot of COVID and that moment of spring of 2020 was framed as giving back. And I really think a lot about actually what we took because wealth disparities were on display and um, being able to navigate like loans and paperwork for small businesses was was like a dire need and was on display. And so when I say like what we took, like I benefited immensely in my life from a loving family and a supportive neighborhood and restaurants that I have. Like, again, like you can probably hear it. Like I love my neighborhood. So like right. I would put restaurant owners and their cell phone numbers in my phone because like, you know, sometimes I might need them to drop something off on their way home or like we kind of develop these really and now they in exchange might say ah can you help my kid get into kindergarten I don't understand this like that's the neighborhood sure. I live in and that's how I've lived my life I think all that came to a head during that spring of 2020. And then was the epicenters New York City launched did you get to see firsthand that a lot of these communities were underserved specific to media, right? They just didn't have access to a lot of the stories. They didn't watch CNN. They didn't watch other major broadcasts or they weren't subscribing to the Times or the Washington Post or the, they just didn't have access to things. And then specifically, not just New York City, but black and brown mm -hmm. folks. And that's basically just to help our listeners understand you are a media is that 
you are now utilizing all your experience as a journalist and a media executive. And I'm using your, your terminology. You're connecting advertising and content with black and brown media companies mm-hmm. who don't understand all the intricacies of digital media and the new business models at large. So do you want to tell us a little bit about UR Media and yeah. why you started it? I think that's maybe a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, no. So we're making this difference as epicenter. Well, guess what? If you're Googling, where can I get a COVID test in Jackson Heights, yeah. Queens? you know, epicenter is not going to be your first Google result, right? Right, If you are looking for size four diapers in Queens, um, you're not going to see that our newsletter is asking people to donate them to the Lions uh, Share Food Pantry, right? And and so that's where I say the economies of scale, um, especially in times of need, um, scale doesn't always serve those who are the neediest. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was frustrated by this because I felt like we were making a difference. But um, for some people, your first stop when you're looking for help is still the Internet. Right. The other the other trend I was seeing was that small businesses were being asked to navigate relief for their businesses in this like Byzantine system online when it was so clear they were not equipped for that world, right? Mm-hmm. And like it, it it keeps going with small businesses. And I really do kind of relate to small businesses as a fellow small business myself. I think that's one of the strengths of an epicenter and it's the strength of a URL media, but you know, you might not have the marketing or the video on social or an Instagram account. Right. And so I just kept seeing that um, these were needs Um, But uh, again, like kind of communities and ethnic media um, sometimes felt like they were missing each other because we still rely on mainstream institutions for delivery and discovery. So I thought, well, you know, one of the resources I turned to for Epicenter in amplifying you know, eventually that like we could help people get vaccines and access um, tests and um, masks and other other resources was the ethnic media. I knew people at the Haitian Times, I knew people at Documented, and I knew people at TBN24, which is a Bangladeshi live streaming channel. That's just in New York City. And I saw that by working together, we could often reach more people, but also that our communities had many overlapping um, areas of interest. And so I thought that's interesting because these overlapping areas of interest are still not rising to the level of a CNN. But what if there were many such communities that could help each other in the same way that we are? In in the case of what I'm describing, we were largely just sharing content, right? Right. And I thought, well, what if we could share content? Like, does that make us feel bigger? And also, like, I just have limited resources. I can't have a newsroom of hundreds of people. Um, so if I need to, for example, um, encourage my community to be counted in the census, which is a real life example, well, could I just use one story and a bunch of us could run it, right? That was the premise and that kind of problem I was trying to solve. And so a woman named Sarah Lomax, who is the um, president of WURD, which is a Black talk radio station in Philadelphia, 
and a woman who I had been in a um, kind of like an accelerator slash coaching program at Harvard with um, the year previous. We had gotten to be good friends. We also respected each other enormously as journalists. Um, and so as I was going through this, I called her and um, it was right in the summer of 2020, which you might remember, most headlines were about George Floyd and kind of re the reckoning. Is there a reckoning? Media outlets like really grappling with their role and diversifying their newsrooms, their content. And so even as I was like turning to her for this um, like business dilemma of like discoverability and scalability and um, and, and distribution, we also were contending with what felt like a revolution right? Is this a moment? Is it a movement? Like we were like, we don't care. It's something, it's something, something is happening right now. And so in that like kind of exchange with each other, Sarah said to me, I feel like we should do something. And I said, well, Sarah, you've been in black media for 30 plus years. If you think this is different, I think this time is different, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I'm going to trust you. You're the expert. <laughs> and so we banded together and we said, look, if we could solve for what we need as small ethnic community media operators, maybe we could solve it for a lot of people. And actually, maybe more of the internet is like us than is not like us, Right. Because remember, like when the internet was good, my favorite part was discovering blog posts or a voice on Facebook and you could just hit share and suddenly you're like, oh my God, this guy got shared like 60,000 times, right? Like that's when it was good. And what ended up happening was that like CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC, and, and again, I've worked at some of these brands, the Wall Street Journal, we all ended up writing kind of the same story in order to find audience and outdo each other, right? That became the game and it was a game, right? And we said, what if we wouldn't have to play that game where all of your content ends up being like what I call the National Donut Day problem, right? Like everyone's <laughs> writing about National Donut Day, yeah. but nobody's writing about where to get a damn COVID test in your neighborhood, right? Like meaning the, the local coverage that matters. We said, what if we didn't have to sacrifice who we are in order to scale? And that our definition of scale would be the ability to rely on each other and really kind of keeping revenue hand in hand with um, the content piece that I'm talking about an audience. What if we could upsell advertising? Because right now, um, an outlet like Epicenter and I know this because I've sold nationally and I've sold locally and you have to work two, three, maybe 10 times as hard to land the deal as a local um, news outlet versus the national news outlet, mm -hmm. right? And your audience is actually so much more valuable. It's targeted, it's loyal, it's direct. Um and so armed kind of with lessons from the CNNs of the world, like I always say, like I had to work at the biggest of the big in order to help the smallest of the small. <laughs> I had to understand how these economics work in order to say, gosh, actually, we're like really valuable audiences because we do have trust and loyalty. What we don't have are resources and access. Mm -hmm. 
What does CNN have? CNN every day was a trust conversation. How do we get people to trust us? I don't have the trust issue. I have the resource issue. And so it was kind of this inverted problem. And so we said, could URL media solve by helping outlets um, access this advertising, um, charging premiums for it, right? Um, could we share content to feel bigger than we are? Could the actual fact that we are rooted in an audience and of service to our audience and looking at communities in a narrower way, could that actually be an asset? Because um, it's it's so clear in who its audience is versus the problem of trying to serve everybody and thus serving nobody, right? That's how it was born. We thought we might indicate content. We thought advertising would take off right away. As you probably know, because you've done your homework, that's not exactly how it worked out, but that was the premise. And so in January of 2021, days after the inauguration of Joe Biden, we announced the creation of URL Media with eight partners. And we say, um, we're launching this. URL stands for Uplift, Respect, and Love. And we kind of stake out that we're going to do things differently under this premise that we don't want the next four years to look like the last four or the last 400. So we really leaned into not just the Donald Trump era that needed to help us redefine media, but really like, let's look at all of the systemic, right? That was the word we kind of leaned into in the latter half of 2020. Let's look at these systemic forces that are against us and just once and for all, let's solve for them. That's great. And part of your calling in this, because you understand media, you mentioned that local audiences are more targeted and basically could be more valuable. Mm -hmm. We know, I shouldn't say you and I know this, but our audience may not, is that local media companies and local news has been decimated over the last couple That's of decades right. based on just historical ad revenue models. An ad revenue model is where you'd have a newspaper and you sell classifieds and car dealerships and things that are local to the folks. And that's why local newspapers have always made their living. That's how they all made their living. Yeah. As you have mentioned, those are not there anymore. And so a lot of these local media companies, the black and brown organizations that you partner with are dealing with the same problem, which is the revenue itself has gone away based on ad revenue. And so you now are going to take those folks, put them in some kind of a forum or a repository of thinkers and media company owners and help propagate their message, their brand and their stories collectively. That's Correct? right. And yeah, and that's right. And I also think that there's a, a modernization that you alluded to earlier. I think one of the great things about each of our partners is that they do have direct audience and you cannot underestimate how valuable a media company with a direct audience is right now. We saw value in that three years ago, right? Okay. So that direct audience is different from the BuzzFeeds and Vices and kind of- Who are bankrupt, by the way. Right, that's <laughs> right, right. That's right. So, so for our audience that doesn't yeah. know that. Yeah. So it, it sort of did catch up, this idea yeah. of not- being a, a loyal user. That's one. The second is what you're alluding to of how do you band together? One is just your audience plus my audience plus this audience plus this audience gets us today with 22 partners, it gets us to about 25 million users, right? right? So wow. it gets us to scale, 
That's huge. That's that huge, is huge because you can leverage that scale, but you don't have to sacrifice. I'm still serving, you know, Latinos in Queens, for example. Correct. That's when I think it gets more sophisticated because we will deal with national brands that say, we need to reach Latinos in the U.S. What have you got? Right. Um, and that piece sure. The reality of how advertising in the model that you describe of newspapers and so forth works is largely through agencies. They're not going to go from epicenter to pulso to palabra to um, la noticia. They're not going to go one by one by one for the most part to do the right thing, right? And so that's where we come in. Now, there are a lot of other... um agencies that specialize in multicultural marketing. And we, in some cases, work with them. Like we very much have this umbrella abundant mindset of actually like there has been an ecosystem around this community media that's been created and we um, operate within it. We're disruptive in some ways, especially I would say the digital targeting um, that we're able to do. But also, you know, I... I think one of the, the one of the problems with a competitive mindset is that it allows national brands to get away with checking one box versus saying, no, actually, you should check a lot of boxes because there's a lot of us in the country, right? There's a, right. there's a lot of ways to reach us. Well, let's use it documented. You mentioned as an example, because yeah. they I looked at some of their articles and they're great. I mean, the pieces great. were great, very awesome. well resourced citations were fantastic. And they actually claim, and I just want to make sure I don't, it's New York go-to source for immigration news. They had a really good piece on humanitarian parole programs on the site yesterday. And give us an example of how just to help better for the listeners to better understand what it is that you guys do with a company like Documented, because they yeah. have their own audience. Yeah. They obviously have some really good journalism. Yeah. How do you partner with them? Two great examples I can give you. One is revenue, one is content. Um, okay. We had a campaign from the Asian American uh, Federation. Um, actually, we've had two campaigns. One was um, a series of jobs that they were advertising. They've uh, The organization has grown. And they said, we need to target within the Asian community. Documented just launched a Chinese language uh, vertical. They're on WeChat. They, you know, documented is amazing because not only is it the stories you're citing on their website, but they're very modern in delivery on WhatsApp and WeChat and text mm -hmm. messaging. So I love documented. I can't say enough about that. So we land this ad deal. We go to documented and we say, Hey, um, do you want some money? They say, of course, like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it, and it's, it's mission aligned, yes. right? Um, this type of advertising for an immigration website or for a site that's not just covering immigration, but serving immigrants, giving people access to jobs is 100% mission aligned. And so um, that's one way that we would work with them. And that was a really good example because they came back and they said, um, yeah, that was like actually pretty, like that was a popular piece of content for us. And I said, yeah, because it's a job. Right. In the community, like that's that's how that's how our communities work, right? Jobs, housing, healthcare. Like it's a you know, as long as my dad came to this country in 1971, like that's how immigrants kind of um, spread word. It was like word of mouth, right? So that was one bucket. The second, um, I'll tell you, as Epicenter, we did a guide to um, accessing SNAP benefits. 
Mm -hmm. um, last year. And we did that, like, again, for Epicenter, it's a lot of like news you can use and um, like almost these like pragmatic ways of dealing with government. I mean, you know this, there's like the story of like how it's supposed to work. And then there's the how it really works. Right. 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 And so we try to, when we can, do the how it really works. And so there was a guide to accessing SNAP benefits. I heard from the audience um, head at Documented who runs the Spanish language WhatsApp community. And he said, I'm getting a lot of questions on SNAP. I saw you guys have this guide. And actually, in all cases, we were dealing with Latino journalists by coincidence, but also kind of by design, right? Like that's yeah. that's that's who's we're hiring to serve our communities. <laughs> yeah. And they said, could we, um, you know, could we do a trans, like, I'm not a big fan of translation, but we basically translated it and then, um, uh, you know, really customized it for community and for consumption by this WhatsApp group. And so they took okay. Epicenter story, they distributed it to their audience. They don't need to research SNAP benefits to answer the questions from their right. audience. Right. So you can leverage outlets. And I think that's an important example because it's not just an article on Snap. Right. Right. Because if you're writing an article on Snap, for example, like, like here's a, we, we did do a piece on this. Um, you know, in March, federal Snap benefits expired. So the lines at food pantries were around the block. Right. A lot of people did that story. You know who that's not a surprise to? The people standing in line. They already know their SNAP benefits expired. It's the rest of us that don't know, right? right. So, like, so I think the, the reason I'm giving you that example is because it's, a, it's an example of centering your community and actually being able to amplify their both needs and some of the answers in order to uplift that community. Um, that's how I think it's a little different than a mainstream media outlet. Oh, that's fantastic. No, that helps. That helps a lot. And so... The next question is, how do you guys make a living? Because <laughs> you mentioned before, how to, you know, I understand that it's ad revenue, but you also have philanthropy and sponsorships and things like that, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's three pillars of URL Media's um, economic model. One is advertising, which I'm elated to report after like thinking we'd build it and everyone would come in year one. Um, in year three, we're we're really feeling like redeemed by this model. Yeah. We no longer do like the all for one, meaning you don't have to buy into all 20 plus partners. Um, you can, you know, say, as I mentioned, like, I want to target the Latino community in the Midwest, like we could be a solution for that. So advertising and the ability to target audiences within that is one bucket. Um, the second, as you mentioned, is philanthropy, which has really come through um, this year. Um, we started with a $25,000 grant from the International Women's Media Foundation. I am forever indebted uh, to those ladies. They were all women who believed in us in order to launch our website. So philanthropy helped get us here in between uh, was a lot of hustle and and and, the, <laughs> yeah, and and now philanthropy seeing not just that the URL model is working um for URL meaning for me to make a living but also yeah. for our partners like the exponential benefit of a documented being able to say hey um 
if you put a job ad with us, it's our most clicked on item. And like we put six people in the job, right? Like that's a narrative. They don't need URL to say that anymore. They can go off on their own and sell, right? For some of the other partners, they get pitch decks from us. They are able to go to market and sell. So philanthropy likes this approach because they see it as a path to sustainability for local news. Um, I love that. So they're supporting us. They're supporting our partners. Um, That's happening um, increasingly. And this year we saw a big kind of turnaround there. The last, which um, you alluded to, have we met in San Francisco. The last pillar is our our diversity, equity, and inclusion recruitment and executive placement and coaching arm. This really happened very organically, like so organically. As we set out, we kind of put up our shingle. It was like a beta website and everyone launches a site and says, we're just going to have this for a month. You know, ours relaunched three years later. Like it was not intentional, but stuff really took off. So we launched in January of 2021 and we meet with newsrooms to say, you should syndicate content from us. It's great. And the newsrooms are like, um, so we know we need diverse content. Um, We know we need to reach diverse audiences, but we don't even have diverse staffers. Like we do not have a diverse newsroom and uh, we feel like we, that's like an urgent priority. And so, um, you know, business women that we are, we said, well, we can help you with that. And so we started to work with, it started with mainstream newsrooms. Today, we've worked with nonprofits, philanthropies, Fortune 100 companies, um, I mean, all, you know, really kind of up and down um, different industries and different roles. Um, but we started to do executive placement and recruitment with uh, with a very much with a DEI lens. I would say we were disruptive for a few reasons. One, we were candidate focused. And the second is um, a lot of folks help you at the C-suite level, mm-hmm. right? Um, and if you're hiring in mass, you know, certainly there's tech recruiters to get you to like a thousand hires or something, right? Which is which is real, especially with AI right now. The middle portion is where it's really hard. And there's 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 two reasons for that. One, it's not as lucrative for companies to um, recruit in that space. Um, the second is that we do a really poor job of training middle managers on how to manage period, let alone how to hire, right? And so so what we ended up finding was by coming into organizations, we felt like we had a transform, we feel like we have a transformative effect on not just how they hire, but how their managers manage. Um, And so that was probably the most rewarding piece of this accidental revenue stream was the ability to be really transformative, um, to, for us to be candidate-centered in our approach, but also for a very shifting landscape. And as you might remember, during COVID times were very fragile for people to be really talent-led in how they were thinking about some of these issues. So just to recap the three um, areas, advertising, sponsorship, philanthropy, and then the recruitment business. That's great. Now, it's, it's always nice to have that level of diversity with your income. <laughs> so good kudos well, to you for that. Media company. I mean, as a media company, uh-huh. I used to say like diversified revenue is a model. I think I said now I'm like, it is the model. It's the only yeah. way. I mean, because again, we've had a the 2023 has not been easy for media. 
Um, oh, and God, it's only no. because we have a diversified revenue model that we've been able to get through it. Well, that's why I mentioned BuzzFeed and, and Vice because I had friends, many friends, and as you may or may not remember, I was in media for 20 years. And so I have a lot of buddies in New York uh, that worked for those organizations and both journalism and media executives. And that was a ad revenue model based on CPMs that with algorithm changes and dying CPMs, they lost their business model, right? They couldn't afford to keep a 150 person newsroom with 30 million uniques because the CPM model changed the cost per thousand. I won't bore our listeners with all of that. But the idea there is that you actually did a good job of diversifying. And this is what leads me to um, your recent board membership at the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is one of the most you know, August publishers in our history. I have friends that were journalists there in the day. Why did they bring you in? Uh, and I think I know why, but why did they bring you in? And what what did you see? Because publicly they admitted that they they failed miserably, not only with diversification of the staff and journalists, but sources. <laughs> so, so even the sources from the journalists were not diverse. So I, I'm talking too much. Why did they bring you in? Oh, no, you're not talking too much at all. Okay. Um, you, you basically laid out the case. I mean, you know, I feel like it's been three years now, so I can be more honest about what was going through my head as I exited CNN. Yeah. Um, you know, it's daunting to leave. I wasn't just leaving a job. I was leaving a lifestyle and a, a level of success in my career. And I was also leaving mainstream media. Right. And so I, I I don't think, um, I think like to say I was daunted was like an understatement of what it felt like in that fall of 2020, in fall of 2020. Um, I got a call from the Philadelphia Inquirer after, um, as you might have uh, read or, or maybe people will recall, um, the Inquirer had run a headline that said buildings matter too. Yep. Right. And um, it was during that period that I was talking to Sarah Lomax every day because we were like, wow, media are making a lot of mistakes right now. What does that mean for us as we're launching this thing, right? So that's like kind of the backdrop of we're innovating, but a lot of mistakes are also going on, right? Mm-hmm. And so they run this, um, rightfully, there is an outcry over, you know, how could the inquirer do this? Um, it led to, uh, some departures. I got a call from Lisa Hughes, who was the new publisher and, um, she just wanted to talk. Actually, it was not about a board. She didn't have a board seat or like any, it was like, literally someone told me you're a smart person for me to talk to. I remember, uh, taking her phone call. I was on the deck, um, and it was like a warm day outside and like, we just talked and I liked her. Um, and so I got a phone call a few weeks later saying, um, would you want to join our board? And for me, it felt like two things were interesting. One, it allowed me to keep a toe in mainstream media and a local news outlet at that. Right. So Mm -hmm. it was, it's mainstream, but Philadelphia is a local, it's a local market. It's not like, it's not like New York or even LA for that matter. Like this is a, a, a local market which I appreciated. Um, The other thing is that the Inquirer is a public sector B company, right? So it's funded by the Lenfest Institute, which is um, a large philanthropy. 
And um, the social mission of it and, and like understanding how the board of a company like that would work was just interesting. Like you probably sense the things that make me say yes are, will I learn something? Is this new? Um, does it feel purposeful? And it, right. the, the inquirer kind of it was like check, check, check on on that front. They admittedly were trying to diversify their board. But mm-hmm. here's where, and you and I know this, you cannot separate diversity from digital prowess, right? So it's not just that I was a board member who happened to be a woman of color. It's also that I, like the first thing I ever did with the Inquirer newsroom was about live news coverage. It was not about race. It was not about DEI, even though arguably everything I do is about race at DEI, but it was about (laughs) breaking news coverage, right? Meaning I have other skills I bring to the organization. Um, So I joined the board in November. I left CNN um, that same month and I've been on the board now for three years. And have you seen progress? I obviously seen progress. Do you see progress that is encouraging or is it slower than you'd like to see it? That's a good question. It is encouraging. Like the DEI progress is a part of every board um, report that we get. You know, I think that the, the challenge both for me in talking about this, but also in living it is that um, it's never fast enough and it's never enough. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you know, are there moments where I'm frustrated or I I think, gosh, we made two steps forward and then one back, or I'm the only one who sees things this way. Like, am I, you know, and, and I think, and I also say this about the inquiry board. I say this kind of writ large for so many of us who are trying sure. to form mainstream institutions. Like it can be lonely. It can feel like a boulder uphill. It can feel um, like, is this worth it? And so for me, I always picture like, what if I wasn't there, right? And if I wasn't there, then would something never have been articulated or discussed or understood? Or And so um, I think a lot about this increasingly as a process versus an outcome. Okay. And so much of diversity focuses on the outcome. We want a woman of color to take this job. That's great. You want that. What does she want? Right? Like, what, what have you put in place to get to that place? And so I would say a lot of my work with the Inquirer that I'm proudest of is focused around the process of being accessible to that newsroom and then of um, raising kind of non-traditional ideas that are both rooted in digital and diversity um, to the organization. That's great. And you did mention that a lot of um, recruiting roles for DEI specifically were at the C-suite level. And then you guys were kind of specializing in the middle management layer as well, not only in the placement, but actually coaching these middle managers to understand this importance and how to weave it into the system a little bit better. Are you seeing that in your your practice now? Are you helping journalistic newsrooms diversify both at the reporter level as well as the source level? Is that something that's happening at scale now? So the source level, it really ends up being a hearts and minds of the reporters and editors themselves. Um, We definitely, um, you know, I would say one way we do that is just through our own content, uh, meaning we have a 
website that's updated several times a day. And I guarantee you the stories you'll see at URL media are different than those you're going to see at the New York Times or CNN, right? Oh, very. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I think um, diversifying sources includes diversifying your news habit, diversifying your own sources of media consumption. Um, And I feel like we're really doing very well in that space. There's another area which actually has been an outcome of the partners in the URL media network, which is our community outlets as sources themselves for mainstream media. And by that, you know, if Haiti's president is assassinated as he was about 18 months ago, I think, um, rather than going to a reporter in Miami, which Miami is not Haiti, just for perspective, shouldn't you have the editor of the Haitian Times on? right? Shouldn't we get as close to an authentic source as possible? And so what we've been able to do is get a lot of our partners earned media in national news outlets. And it's to exactly your point, it diversifies the sources of um, these outlets, but also is much needed exposure and platform for the good work that our partners are doing. Well, and, and for all your viewers, readers, listeners, it's so helpful because to your point, if it's from the actual Haiti, yeah. <laughs> that's that's kind of like today if you're dealing with the tragedy of, in Israel-Hamas conflict is that if you have a reporter on the ground there, it's a much different area than someone who's, oh, let's just say a Jewish person in New York City, right? There's that's a right. very different purview specific yeah. to how you're going to absorb that, right? Because you're actually there dealing with it from that direct subject matter expert, I guess that's really where it comes into play. It feels rooted. I mean, like so much of our discourse right now feels like it's like, it's, it's like, it's, it just feels kind of random. And I'm like, I think we probably want to get closer to the ground. Right. Yeah. Um, We want fewer filters on our stories, which actually like I think that's another issue with journalism is like it's kind of been this assembly line style of inverted pyramid. And on the one hand, on the other hand, there's two sides of the story. It's inverted pyramid. The most important news goes at the top. And then you kind of like fatten up. There's a lot of ways that American journalism has evolved in the mainstream that it is questionable on how much it actually serves the end user. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I think that getting closer to the ground um, besides the authenticity of the story, um, it also can often connect action or emotion or, you know, it, it, at least there's some connectivity between the user and the subject. Yes. Are you seeing, because Everything that I've witnessed on your site was, you know, well-sourced, well-written, good pieces. Thank you. Are you up against what every other journalistic organization up against? You're up against entertainment as a competitor. You're not just up against like other journalists. You're up against, you know, a 24-hour news cycle where you have talking heads who are charismatic and great talkers. They have good guests it's opinion-based. It is emotional, right? They know exactly how to stoke the fires. <laughs> so it's it it caters to a very specific audience. So if you're watching MSNBC, you're a very specific audience. If you're watching Fox News, you're a very specific audience. How are you guys actually bridging that? Because you are journalism. You are journalistic folks. How, how are you like 
I'd say there's with two, that level of competition. Yeah, there's two disruptions across our partners, although at Epicenter, I could say this firsthand is happening. One is um, just IRL engagement, whether it's events or flyers okay. or barcodes or something that is, you know. In real life, just to be clear. In right? real, yeah. In yes. real life, what connection can we make to you? Right. And I'm just seeing more and more of our partners moving in that direction. Um, and sort of the click on a website be damned, right? right? Like, let's really get connected. Um, the second area that I think we really need to be paying attention to is video. Mm-hmm. So every time, and what, and what you'll see this with URL, like we'll often take partner content and just put it on a 90 second reel and put that on Instagram or TikTok and it goes viral, yeah. right? And I think that's a value add for our partners because they might not have a video person on staff or they might not have the distribution to do that. Or, And so for me, um, I think continuing to switch up format and understanding where our audiences are now living, meaning where they're consuming is a really important part of our um, model. And also just like it's in our DNA as largely immigrants, the children of immigrants, Black Americans, like we know how to pivot to meet the market reality. Like that is the story of our existence, right? Mm -hmm. The one area that I think you were getting at that I'm really glad you asked about is the entertainment um, competition. Because what I don't think we're doing is holding the platforms to account for yanking out like the chair from under us, from like links and uh, credible information. And, and so if you're me, like, you know, your epicenter, you never really had a chance on Facebook or Google, let's be honest. Right. But at least links were not devalued or defavored. Meaning if you are in Jackson Heights and you're like, Hey, neighbors, you know, um, here are some tactics to deal with hate crimes if they're coming ever closer, which is a very real issue for my community right now. It's a piece I wrote yesterday. That's useful content, right? Mm-hmm. If you post that on Facebook, it's not going to be, it's it's going to be um, not appearing in people's feeds because it's a link to a news organization. Right. People, as you see, are getting around that link in the comments. Um, I'll do a screen right. grab of like a, a GIF and then whatever. So people are contorting themselves to give you good information, right? The platforms have basically yanked out that audience and opportunity from us. Fine. It's their platform. They could do what they want. The problem is they've replaced it with a lot of entertainment sites that are not journalism at all. And you click on them and you're engaged because, I mean, the latest uh, stuff that I've been going down the internet rabbit hole is like anything with friends after the death of Matthew Perry is like showing up in my feed over and over and over again because they know I'm a Gen X woman who probably watched friends, right? Right. And I don't have a problem with friends content, just to be super clear, but these are kind of pink slime sites where you go and they're really (laughs) not about, it's not about friends. It's like for toenail fungus advertising or um, buy this, I don't know, like as you, as seen on TV, like these are commerce sites. Yes. So I guess the challenge I have and my plea to anyone listening is to know what you're consuming because very quickly Facebook went from Washington Post and CNN and the war in Gaza being 
on your feed to pink slime. Right. And you can't do that without changing people's priorities, the psyche of the nation. By the way, we're weeks away from this pivotal election year. So that's like the place where I feel um, like morally compelled to keep going, but also kind of propelled to figure out a virality of good content in order to compete with the bad. Um, I hope I have a shot because everything I just told you, the odds are pretty stacked against me. No, that's why I asked because it, and the fact that you guys have 20 mil, 25 million uniques a month now is, you know, good. congrats. That's just a Thank huge, you. that's Thank a huge over, undertaking. And you guys did it slowly in the old fashioned way, hard work, sweat and yeah. tears. <laughs> so I know that's not easy to get to, but I think that's really what I think is unique about what you guys are doing is you're using your skills, your hub and spoke center to actually lift up all of the boats around you and share your resources, your technology, your pieces and your content to help local communities actually get information that is important and relevant to them. Correct? Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. I mean, and also you hope that um, those intersections are also where people meet. So in case you're indigenous and not on native news, which is like pretty unlikely because it's the largest web portal for indigenous Americans that there is. But like, could we introduce you to native news content? Because if you care about indigenous issues in America, which hopefully should be all of us, like this is the place you go, right? Right. Um, And I still have faith that people want to go to that source, right? Like I still have faith that that's the better source, but also that people want to be connected to the better source. Well, I also think what you're doing, and I haven't, you know, analyzed any of your traffic reports or anything like that, but just from my, you know, homework on what you guys are doing and what you mentioned earlier, which is, you know, local news is as a very targeted audience. And I think you're doing the same thing with a very similar audience. And I, again, I haven't assessed your audience at that level, but the content that you have, the partners that you have, specific to brown and and black communities, both within the community, but also the organizations that cater to them, you also have a very targeted, specific audience. So I think that's the difference as opposed to, you know, the MSNBCs and the Fox News, they're catering to this large ass audience who they're trying to, you know, I need 3 million people to watch my show at 6 p.m. on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. You guys have a distribution network that's online, that's digital, that's robust, and shareable, and all of your partners, even the ones that don't have the financial wherewithal for video production and sharing and understanding of social media, you guys are helping bolster all of that lack by being as an actual partner. And yeah. so your consortium itself is much larger. The sum is greater than the parts, that kind of thing. Oh, the, yeah. The sum is always greater than the parts. And also like in the spirit of abundance, let me save you guys some time. Like, here's our research into health plans in whatever state, right? Like, we really do operate from the non-competitive um, sharing of information is ultimately making all of us more powerful. Well, you know, I have three or four more pages, which I can't get to because I promised your assistant I would let you go <laughs> at uh, three o'clock. It is 3.02. You've been wonderful. How can our listeners get a hold of you? What's the best way? Sure. 
I'm a little scarily easy to find on the internet. I okay. mean, it's just follow url-media.com. Like if you want to bookmark that and turn to it early and often and just say like, what is the pulse of black and brown America? I think that's going to be ever more important in this upcoming year. Um, epicenter-nyc.com. Uh, if you go there right now or in the next uh, 24 hours, which I don't think... Uh, your listeners will be doing, but I, I wrote a piece on um, centering our children as they are the victim of hate right now. And it's a piece I hope nobody needs, but I know a lot of people need, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and also I'm uh, very easy to find on LinkedIn and Twitter and I'm still on Twitter and I still call it Twitter. Um, <laughs> so I'm still on social media. Like I'm a, I'm a weird believer in it, even as everybody else seems to be leaving in droves. Well, again, thank you for your time, Mitra. This is thank fantastic. You. I'm so happy for your success and I wish you nothing but continued success moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is lovely. Okay. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.